Um, let me pray for us. And then we'll look at the paper. Father in heaven, thank you for these life-giving verses. Verses that remind us of who you are and what you are like. And verses that remind us of the reality of the gospel and yet we are challenged because so often we forget these things and we don't rejoice, we are anxious. And so would you speak to us, each of us this morning please. In Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Sunday Times this morning. Um, some articles just from the front page that I thought would just again highlight the relevance, if you like, of what we're looking at, just the reality that these things are ongoing. I'm not going to mention um, the rugby. Um, <laughs> but I will mention uh, an article on Instagram. Um, so the ability you have to take a picture of yourself and then the way that people would want to dock to that image before you post it, which is quite scary. I'll leave it up at the front if you want to kind of look afterwards. Um, me, myself and Instagram, contrasting pictures of a, there's a project being done, um, teenagers photo, photographed and then they had a chance to dock to those photos before they posted them. Um, just a very real thing. Um, and then particularly the thing that struck me for today was... Um, uh, the, the fact that suicides in teenage years have um, doubled in the last eight years for teenagers. Um, and they're tying that largely with social media, as we'll see. Um, but I just wanted, as getting, um, popping into co-op this morning, saw that and thought that would just be something to have a quick look at. So th- what we're thinking about is not hypothetical, um, but actually very relevant I'm going to struggle with this thing. I can see it's going to go, isn't it? Never mind. Um, <laughs> I've got too much stuff on here to not touch. There we go. Thank you. Um, as I say, one of the sad realities of the current culture is the fact that we have growing levels of anxiety, growing levels of mental health issues, particularly amongst younger generations. Um, To be fair, the jury seems to be out quite on why that is happening. Some think maybe it's just that we are better at diagnosing these things now than in previous generations. Um, Some think that perhaps we are just more willing to speak about it now. There's a little less of a stigma. And so where in the past things may have been hidden away, now there's more of an openness and an ability to admit um, issues with mental health. Um, It does seem to be particularly prevalent amongst teenage girls. That seems to be a reality. Um, the sharpest increase identified. And as I say, one thing that seems to be gaining traction, one idea that's gaining traction, and we mentioned some of this back at the start of January, and particularly on that Sunday evening if you were around for the um, thinking about mobile phone session. Um, if you look at the lines though, and you look at the increasing levels of mental illness, and you, you add on the time when mobile phones became more and more ubiquitous, you do see a strong correlation. Um, And if there is a link, then maybe the question we need to ask is why? As I say, there's still studies being done, so it's not a sort of hard and fast thing, but there are some ideas out there, things beginning to surface as to why that might be the case. Um, It probably works both ways, people say. The fact that we are on our phones more often 
means that we are not doing things that we ought to be doing that would help us in terms of mental health. So, they say, we are not doing things that increase our, our general well-being. There are, there's less exercise, there's less being outside, all that kind of stuff. That doesn't happen so much anymore. Um, 30 years ago, from my experience, school kids went to the park after school and you play football or you play blocky 40-40 or manhunt or that kind of stuff. It still happens now, but it's less common now. There's more screen time going on. Um, the other thing that's gone down, it seems, is sleep. Often people, people, given the opportunity, will stay up until the night scrolling and tapping and commenting and responding to messages. And Sleep has been shown to be incredibly important for our mental health. And less sleep equals more anxious. And often phones mean less sleep. Um, we as a family, and it was hard at first, I think have mostly benefited from having our phones plugged in down in the kitchen um, since probably last summer. Um, it's not necessarily that easy for grown-ups or for teenagers, but it's a reality, and I think we're benefiting from it as a result. Um, I know some others have tried that off the back of this series. Um, why not plug your phone in in the kitchen so you can't look at it at night? So, less activities that increase well-being, less sleep, but also less face-to-face -face contact. And we talked about this in week one again. We are bodily individuals made for relationship with real physical people, and usually words and bodies go together. And whilst in one sense phones can help us hugely with our sort of connectedness with all kinds of people from down the years, the sort of relationships we're left with are pretty superficial and not that helpful. So if we're on our phones more, then we're doing less of these things, which is potentially having impact in terms of mental health. Secondly, though, the fact that we are on our phones more means that we are doing other things, again, will have impact on mental health. So we have a propensity to be bombarded by all kinds of information that can make us feel anxious and fearful. Real-time news is a blessing and it's a curse. Within seconds of stuff happening around the world, you can hear about it. You can see it in real time on Twitter. You can see people react to it with a hashtag. And in one sense, that's a blessing, but in another, you can feel the weight of that. The reality of that event as it unfolds at the time. And then suddenly we begin to ask things like, well, the what-ifs. What if here? What if me, what if this situation, what if that here, and then we can have so many of these things happening all at once, potentially in a day, then there's a real weight and an oppression we can feel almost, making us feel more anxious. Again, we talked about this um, particularly at the start of January, but the fact that social media particularly can raise the comparison game for us horizontal comparisons with how everybody else is doing. What are they posting? Look where they are. Look what they look like. Look how high up the ladder they've reached. Look, they're married. Look, they've had kids. And then especially when things can be filtered and doctored and tweaked and airbrushed, as the front page of the Times shows us, with just the right lighting, then we can feel insignificant or inferior. 
You can admire their selfie. What you don't know was it was their 60-second attempt. (laughs) And it took 20 minutes of filtering. Again, we thought about this at the start of January, but thinking specifically about our phones, we zoomed in on on a particular example. Um, Asina O'Neill, 19-year-old Australian model, social media celebrity, half a million Instagram followers, and she jacked it all in. And she jacked it all in because she realised it was fake. And she realised the, the hamster wheel that she was running round and round on was having detrimental effects to her mental health. She says this, she says, I don't blame anyone for my actions or how much I was absorbed by social media, my appearance and this 2D world. It was me, I was being deceitful, I was lost, I was sick and I needed serious help. But of course I didn't know that at the time. At the time, I thought more money, more of these friends being thinner, that would solve this internal misery. Striking thing, when she comes off social media, there's a massive backlash against her as well. People within the industry calling her a a fake or a hoax or just saying it's a big attention grab, she wants more followers. But actually the reality was she saw what the pressure was doing to her. The competition, the need to be liked, the daily need for dopamine hits, the... The hamster wheel of performance, where she ended up just saying, no thanks. Instead of running faster and faster, she just jumped off. Another writer puts it like this. And we can readily tabulate how many likes, how many comments, how many favourites, how many retweets or repins our friends, status, picture, tweet, post received, versus how many hours received. And get this, to the envious heart... Each one of these little icons of approval is a red-hot poker stoking the burning fire of bitterness and envy. The comparison game can be exhausting. So more information bombarding, more comparisons, but also there's FOMO too, fear of missing out, and anxiety about the need to be connected. Maybe you know that initially, that feeling you've left your phone at home or you've left it on the bus, or you've made the deliberate decision to leave your phone alone, you don't check it, you don't check the feed or the comments, and you feel stressed about that. What if, I, what if I'm missing out? What if I, there's a message that I need to deal with really quickly? I'm gutted that I wasn't online to see that person's post when he posted that thing or she posted that thing. Or... Or what if they know I've seen their message, but I've not responded? You know that thing on WhatsApp? You send it anything where they've seen it. Why haven't they got back to me? Or maybe you're the one not responding. You're thinking, what will they think of me? Will they think I'm deliberately blanking them and making a point of it? Little do they know that we just haven't got any mobile data, or whatever it is. And again... Fourthly as well, not on my PowerPoint, just this last week and coming off the back of that front page about suicide, there's been a, there's an outcry, a teenage girl um, killed herself in 2017 and later it turned out she had been bullied on um, particularly Instagram and Pinterest it seems. Um, The internet has opened up easy access to all kinds of troubling suicide and self-harm posts. Uh, Those things have always been there. But just with phones, they are more accessible. They are more available. They are more private. And so the government, even this last week, um, are thinking through 
the ongoing reality of social media platforms, encouraging Instagram, Pinterest, whoever it may be, to be more vigilant in removing these harmful posts quickly. These posts that advertise self-harm and suicide because there's a, there's a copycat effect that goes on. The um, BBC news page on Tuesday said, UK could ban social media over suicide images, Minister warns. Whether it will go that far, I doubt. But it is serious and is being taken increasingly seriously as the data is coming in more quickly. Now, there may be other things that are making our culture increasingly prone to anxiety, to mental health issues. Maybe the current polarised political status that we see, we spoke of that last week, could be that particular politicians know how to stoke those fires as a deliberate thing sometimes. Maybe it's the fact that most people won't be able to buy a house until they are at least 40 now. Maybe it's the reality of crippling student debt. Maybe it's the fact that modern families are decreasingly stable and increasingly messy. And that means that those foundations are are not there as they might have been in years gone by. Or maybe even it's the stuff we've spoken of in weeks gone by, the, the coddling of the current younger generation often because of parenting philosophy. Thinking that people are fragile and so we protect them rather than having to face hardships. Also, we live in a world where we can control so much. We can control an awful lot, and yet sometimes we just get a glimpse that we can't. Sometimes we remember that we are not in control of things, and that can lead to anxiety. I want us to um, spend the rest of our time considering the passage that Esther read for us. So if you want to turn up um, Philippians 4, I want to say a couple of things before we jump in. Um, If you're someone who struggles with anxiety, the three passages for you to have in your mind, to pray over, to think through, to meditate upon, to to chew over, would be Matthew 6, 25 onwards, um, 1 Peter 5, verse 6 onwards, and then Philippians 4, where we are this morning. So Matthew 6.25, 1 Peter 5 verse 6, and then Philippians 4 verse 4 to 8. So if anxiety is a thing for you or your friends, um, then let me urge you to make those three passages companions for life. They are really helpful. That's the first thing to say. The second one as well, to say that there are, in one sense, we've got... And it's complicated, but little a anxiety, and then big capital A anxiety. And there's a continuum between them. So it may be anxiety that we face about just general life situations and circumstances. Maybe you would call yourself an anxious person. You know the tendency you have towards that. But then at the other end of the spectrum, there are dangerous and damaging forms of anxiety, where maybe counselling or medication will be needed. Um, The complication is the continuum between is messy in one sense. I want to say at the beginning, if you're someone here and you suffer with severe anxiety, maybe first talk to somebody in this room, a friend you trust, maybe a home group leader or somebody who, come chat to me afterwards, but someone you trust, someone who knows you. And then if needs be, then speak to a trained professional as well. And with that, we'll jump into Philippians 4. 
Philippians 4 and verse 4. This comes from a section. I'm urging the Philippians to rejoice. If you have a look down. You see how it starts off? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. And if you know the letter, you know that the Philippians are facing real flack for their trust in Jesus. There seems to be pressure and opposition coming from outside the church. You see that at the end of chapter 1. But that pressure and opposition squeezing them in is then causing division and frustration and anger, it seems, within the church. There are factions. There are cracks. And yet Paul knows that rejoicing does not come naturally to us. And so verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. But then you get three hurdles to our rejoicing. Are you someone who finds it easy to rejoice in the Lord always? I would guess there are very few of us in the room who can agree to that. And so maybe three of these hurdles that Paul picks up on are are helpful for us. And the three things that he zooms in on are gentleness and anxiety and thought life. Um, I've given you the structure ahead of time. Let me read the verses again for us and see if you can see how they hang together. So the initial command, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy... Think about such things. So each time, Paul is calling us to to remove the hurdle to our rejoicing. He's not just telling us to do it, but he's giving us reasons to believe it. And at root, each of them we'll see is a refocusing on the Lord again. So how can we rejoice always, to start off with verse 4? Well, it seems the answer is always see reality in terms of Christ. Because we are to rejoice in the Lord. But the problem with opposition and the problem with uncertainty and the problem with hardships and the problem with suffering, the problem with problems, is that they have this annoying way of overshadowing us and infecting everything. So they begin to consume us and to shape us and define us and all we can see is is this thing over me rather than, well, reality. We can't see past our problems. And we say, Paul, you don't know me. How am I meant to rejoice always? And Paul says, I'll rejoice in the Lord always. Lift your eyes to see reality in terms of Christ. He overshadows everything. He consumes us. He defines us. He shapes us. He is bigger than whatever is going on. And I don't say that glibly. And I say that to myself as I say that to all of us. 
he is bigger than whatever is going on. Whatever that thing is that's causing you anxiety, he is bigger. And we must be a people who preach that truth to ourselves because we so easily forget it, don't we? Maybe it's just me. And so then Paul says, well, gentleness, verse 5. And a bit of me goes, why gentleness, Paul? Why do we move from rejoicing to be gentle? What's the link? I wonder if it's this. I wonder if the opposition they are facing, the division that's occurring, is causing them to not be gentle with each other. Because you see what he reminds them of. The Lord is near. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. And if you imagine you're a Christian brother or sister around the world today, facing opposition, facing hardship, the reality of your Christian life to them, to know that the Lord is near, is such an encouragement. That the Lord is near, you might feel alone, you might feel isolated, you might feel on your own, but you're not. Or it could be, the Lord is near, you don't need to lash out, you don't need to seek retribution, you don't need to bring justice yourself. You can just trust him. It's not gone unnoticed. One day justice will be served. Be gentle because the Lord is near. Friends, when life is hard, be gentle with others. And it gets more challenging than that. Because he moves on from gentleness to anxiety. I take it anxiety is a huge problem. I take it everybody in this room will will struggle with anxiety to some degree or another. It's a huge problem for people like us in a place like this. A couple of years ago, there was an article claiming that anxiety, in a broad definition, represents the most common form of officially classified mental illness today. Across the board, 15% of people living in the UK, you can do the maths, what that might mean for this room, and that's a more um, extreme form of anxiety. Over a third of British people report feeling more frightened than they used to, and that was two years ago. I suspect if we did the study again, um, we'd be looking at significantly more. Why, as Paul urges the Philippians and us to rejoice, does he bring in anxiety? I wonder if it's this, and again I'll say this carefully, I wonder if anxiety at root comes as a result of us trusting in the wrong thing. Why do we find it so hard to rejoice? Because we trust in the wrong things. Because our focus, our attention, our hearts are taken up with the wrong things. And so anxiety at root is us trusting in the wrong things. Think about that through the lens of social media again. Um, The anxiety that comes from us finding our identity, as Grace was teaching us a moment ago, our identity in the likes and the loves and the retweets, the trusting the wrong things. Well, the anxiety that comes from worrying about the what-ifs, 
rather than what we know of God and who he is. The anxiety that comes from FOMO, missing out because we're not tapped into whatever it is. We're missing out what others are enjoying. Which all of them at heart are us trusting in the wrong things. I wonder as well actually if the whole identity thing plays a huge part nowadays. Now you can decide your identity. You get to say who you are. You be you and I'll be me. We say. And rather than your value and your worth coming from outside being an inherent thing, now it comes from inside you. And you get to create and recreate as you wish. You get to change your body as you wish. You get to tattoo it as you wish. You get to be who you want to be. It's as if we're a blank canvas and we get to decide. Which in one sense sounds great. But at the same time you think, well... What if I change my mind? And who gets to decide who I am then? And can I trust myself? Who, who actually am I? And that can be incredibly anxiety-inducing. Rather than knowing who we are because we are made in the image of our Creator God, we get to be creators. And when we're creating ourselves or recreating ourselves, that's not something we were made for. And so verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I love it that Paul is so real here. He doesn't pull any punches We're a people, potentially, you can be anxious about anything and everything. In this room, there will be a plethora of things we get anxious about. There's an anything, verse 6, and in every situation, therefore. How do we deal with anxiety? I wonder how do you deal with anxiety? When you're feeling anxious, what is your plan of action? What generally happens? Because it's striking, Paul doesn't say, stick your head in the sand and think about something else. Find something to watch on YouTube. Binge on Netflix. Put your headphones on and just think about something else. Try and forget. He doesn't say that. Now there may be a place for that at times, we need a pause. But at root, Paul says, we pray. Jesus in Matthew 6 says something very similar. We pray. Look away from yourself, look away from your problems, and look to your Father in heaven who knows what you need. Look towards him, and as we go to him, as you present your request to him, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving even. So verse 7. So verse 7, God gives us a peace from him. He can and he does and he will. I know that's a testimony of countless Christians down the ages, around the globe, in this room. The problem is it's easier said than done, isn't it? In the thick of the anxiety, when we are panicking, when hearts are racing, when minds are foggy, Sometimes it's quite hard to pray. 
as the song goes, the hymn. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. And, and in one sense that sounds slightly glib. But in another it is so true. And why are we slow to pray? Well, because who are we trusting? We're trusting ourselves. We're trusting the wrong things. I wonder if that's why the with thanksgiving is there as well. Just at the end of verse 6, or nearly at the end of verse 6. Do you see, it sounds nonsensical, but when we're able to press pause, in that anxious moment, to take stock of what we do have, to give thanks for what we do know, to turn our attention to the one whom we do have, then with thanksgiving, our perspective can change, can be radically altered. Maybe you know something of that, maybe you know that anxiety, and you know that if you sin to the Lord, perhaps, then anxiety begins to lift, because your hearts are warmed again, your truths are being recalled, you are building upon what you know, rather than what might be, or what might not be, or... When you remember Christ and you sing of his love for you, his death and resurrection in your place, all you have in him is his gracious kindness and goodness, the, the gospel that we sing of. Maybe with thanksgiving, that leads us again to trust in the right thing. I find that to be true for me. Often... For those in Christian leadership, I think anxiety can come when we realise we are not in control of the situation. You don't know how something will turn out and you're meant to be leading a people of sorts. We're fearful of failing, we're fearful of what others will think of us, we're fearful of division, we, we just don't know. And so anxiety can come because we realise we're not the Messiah. Because we realise it's not about us. And yet that thanksgiving can remind me of who I am and what is called of me. Maybe it's not trusting self for you. Maybe it's trusting something or someone else. And when that something or that someone is removed, then we get angry and despondent and anxious. That thing that we think we must have is removed from us, taken from our grasp. And we suddenly realise what we've been trusting in. If your confidence comes from what people think of you on social media, it's going to be a constant battle to keep your profile up in people's minds, on their feeds. If your confidence comes from your job or your title, then you're going to struggle if there are redundancies being made at work. If your confidence comes from your money, your savings, your investments, then you're going to start getting twitchy if the economy takes a bit of a downturn, if house prices fall. If your confidence comes from your friendships, then when there's discord and argument, or unresolved issues, or people block you, or defriend you, or ignore you, that's going to hit. If your confidence comes from stability and security, and knowing what the future holds, then this whole Brexit thing might be a bit of a nightmare for you. Anxiety will not be far behind 
that's the kind of person you are. If confidence comes from safety and comfort and structure and routines, then changes will be complicated. Then real-time news feeds may be difficult. Because suddenly we don't feel comfortable. We don't feel like we are in charge. And the problem is, our hearts veer towards those things. It's a daily battle to make our hearts trust in the right things. And when we don't do that, then anxiety can come. And friends, this is not just hypothetical, this is everyday life, isn't it? This is you and this is me. This is each morning the decision we make. This is each morning, with thanksgiving, remembering who we are, whom we serve, and what life is about. Which then leads through to verse 8, I think. It leads into how we think. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Uh, And I think verse 8 is fascinating. Um, The slightly technical slant on it. I think Paul is doing two things here. Some of these words that he uses are only here in the New Testament. In the Greek, they are only in this passage. But actually they're really common from outside the Bible, literature of the time, the thinking of the people of the time. And so it's almost like Paul is taking this perceived wisdom of the world and inverting it, the wisdom of the time, wisdom about what virtuous living looked like. And yet I think in the context of Philippians he's doing something different. So he's not just saying, look at the world and that they've got it right. He's subversive, because who in the context of Philippians is the most beautiful, or true, or noble, or right, or pure, or lovely, or admirable, or excellent, or praiseworthy? Who is it? It has to be Christ, doesn't it? The heart of the the letter, I think there's a pretty good argument, is 2, verse 5 to 11, if you know Philippians at all. He's saying, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, Paul says who being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And so, you see, don't put headphones on and try and think about something else if you're feeling anxious. Think about Jesus. Think about this this reality in chapter 2 that changed the world forever. Don't just try and distract yourself. Focus on something more important. He is the one to shape our mindset. He is foundationally the one to ponder and to meditate upon. He is the truly, true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy one. Think about Christ. 
And then we'll be able to rejoice in the Lord always. And that will then keep us gentle, verse 5. And that will help us to deal with our our anxieties, verse 6. Because we are thinking about him. And therefore we will be rejoicing in him. Let me leave us in prayer. Father in heaven, we are fearful of, of slipping back into the same old, same old when it comes to our anxieties. Lord, you know us, you know our hearts, you know each of us and the reality of the things that make us anxious. You know the things that stop us from rejoicing in you always. And so we pray that you would help us. We pray that you would be at work in us. We pray that you would help us particularly to be thinking about whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy, because we are thinking about Christ. Might he increasingly shape us? Might he increasingly be in our hearts and our minds, might we be increasingly captivated by him and what he's done for us. His beauty, his kindness, his his patience, his love. Help us please to increasingly trust in him because we are trusting in the right things. Forgive us and guard us from trusting in the wrong things, we pray. In his name. Amen.